Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. There is so much power packed into this week's Spirit in Action show. We'll be talking to two guests who have a deep and guiding connection to the earth at their cores, and the intellect and passion to change the world with their work. Of course, we're coming up on Earth Day, which I think deserves to be observed every day. So our second guest, Crispin Pierce, will be talking about research he's just got published on the environmental effects of frac sand mining and about his work with the Sustainability Advisory Committee here in Eau Claire. But first, we'll be welcoming back noted author and foraging expert Samuel Thayer. My visit with Sam is in two parts, and today he'll be reading the first essay in his book. The book is Incredible Wild Edibles, and the essay is on ecoculture. Sam Thayer and I sat down together. Sam, it's good to have you back for a third time now for Spirit in Action. Hello, Mark. Happy to be back. There's a whole lot we can talk about in your new book, the third in the series, Incredible Wild Edibles, 36 Plants That Can Change Your Life. But I really want you to share the final essay that you have in the book. There's so much rich material throughout the book, but I felt like this final chapter on ecoculture just captured something for me. Uh, My wife and I read it aloud to each other, and she was crying. I was so moved by it. I'm wondering, would you be willing to read that? Sure. I've never read this aloud, so we'll see how it goes. Modern foragers seek wholesome food, healthy activity, and a daily relationship with thriving nature. They seek the inner peace of a truly sustainable lifestyle that reflects their values and the deep security of self-sufficiency. The civilized economy has failed to supply these things. It has given us cheap food and plenty, but impoverished in micronutrients and laced with cancer-causing chemicals. This is better than starvation, but we want to thrive. The civilized paradigm tells us that we must destroy nature to provide for ourselves and reduce ourselves to caged livestock for the comforts of modern life. It tells us to be satisfied with luxury cars, air conditioning, and flickering gadgets. It tells us that nature is boring compared to the distilled content piped to us on little screens. Although our hearts don't want to believe this, we reluctantly succumb to the message because we have never heard another. But our hearts are right. We are ready for another relationship to the earth, marriage rather than slavery cooperation rather than war. We seek another economics based on another set of values, another way of producing food, another culture, ecoculture. Ecoculture is the term that I coined to refer to the management of natural ecosystems to enhance their production of useful products. It's no surprise that English lacks a word for this ancient concept since it defies civilization's deeply held beliefs about the human relationship to nature. Our prevailing understanding of the terms wild, cultivate, and natural ecosystem leaves no room for ecoculture. It's an oxymoron, an impossibility. Natural ecosystems, we believe, are to be destroyed and replaced, not enhanced. It is time to challenge this dogma of civilization, to replace our agrocentric creation myth that masquerades as history and expose the lies of our ruthless economy. It is not ecoculture that is impossible, Infinite growth is the naive pipe dream of the unrealistic. The fundamental difference between ecoculture and agriculture is that ecoculture focuses on plants that maintain themselves in relatively stable communities, 
while agriculture focuses on disturbance-dependent plants that cannot maintain themselves in a given locality. Ecoculture creates a plant community that produces human food but looks and functions like a native habitat precisely because it is one. Unlike agriculture, ecoculture considers both ecology and production. Ecoculture acknowledges that the biotic community has multiple roles to play. It has economic value, aesthetic value, environmental value, and inherent value. It is our food, fiber, fuel, and perhaps our income. It builds soil, protects watersheds, absorbs carbon, and is home to wildlife that we cherish. It is our place of refuge and play and prayer, a beautiful and wholesome place. Sacred. The term ecoculture may be new, but the concept is ancient. Gatherers have long engaged in mutually beneficial partnerships with the wild plant communities from which they harvest. In eastern North America, nut groves were thinned to park-like orchards to increase yields. Pine barrens were burned to promote heavy blueberry crops and to maintain openings for elk and deer. Pond lilies were pulled from wild rice beds. In the Pacific Northwest, coastal wetlands were carefully managed to produce a variety of root vegetables. Canopy trees were thinned to cast light on crab apples, highbush cranberry, and elderberry. Camas meadows were burned, weeded, thinned, and mulched. In California, oak groves were maintained to maximize acorn production. The beauty of these managed landscapes impressed the Europeans who encountered them, but the newcomers misunderstood what they saw because they believed in a false dichotomy between gathering and cultivation. The practices of those ancient plant gatherers need to be emulated today. We can choose our role model, the beaver or the bulldozer. Yes, we can harvest sustainably, but we need not reduce our impact. That concession is the hopeless fatalism of alienation. It is time to increase our impact, our positive impact, on the landscape and become agents of healing the earth, even as we gather the earth's gifts to heal and nourish ourselves. Near my sugar bush is a naturally occurring, nearly pure stand of well-spaced old-growth sugar maple. Its understory is dominated by wild leeks, two superb native crops growing together naturally, each enhancing the other's production. I am modeling the management of my own sugar bush, a stand that has been abused and logged off, after stands such as this one. This management and harvest will not compromise the health of my forest in any way. It will improve it. This harmony is the model for ecoculture. But you don't have to engage in forestry or sell your produce to practice ecoculture. A tiny space will do. Eight feet from my window as I write this is a lush, half-shaded corner of the yard that I call my nettle garden. It's about a twentieth of an acre and provides us with copious greens of several species for seven months of the year. It started with a small clump of stinging nettle that appeared between the house and the nearby woods and a colony of Virginia waterleaf that had crept into the clearing beside it. These two native plants made me suspect that the soil could be ideal for a floodplain or hardwood forest edge community, so I set to work planting and transplanting native edibles that would naturally occur together. The centerpiece was a highbush cranberry. Around it are ostrich fern, cutleaf coneflower, cow parsnip, hairy woodmint, wood nettle, honewort, allium canadense, that's a species of wild garlic, wild leek, water leaf, and of course, tons of stinging nettle. The only work required to maintain this diverse and productive garden is a few hours per year weeding out the reed canary grass, goldenrod, and brambles that want to take over. Europeans came to this land wanting wheat and cheese, but it wasn't here, so they forced the land to make it. They didn't ask the land what it had to give. I'm not naive enough to think that we will give up wheat and cheese, but we are mature enough to compromise. We can eat acorns and hickory nuts too. 
Native ecosystems will not provide all of the fast food hamburgers we want, but they might give us something else like salmon and camas. I'm not arguing impractically for a world of austere absolutes. I'm pointing out that alongside the industrial agriculture that we want, there is another viable option that we also want. Most of the people who practiced it have been killed or their economies forcibly modernized, and now we tell ourselves that that option is extinct. As long as we cling to the conservative delusion that ecoculture is impossible, we will know nothing of its potential to provide for us. Just like the overweight diabetic who claims that it is impossible to eat real food and be active, we will stubbornly decline and die that way, calling it fate in our final dishonesty. We live in an age of excess that is destroying our lives. We are obese, bored, addicted, depressed. Our teeth rot out. Our pancreases don't work. Our feet are deformed and we can hardly walk. Technology's promise to reduce labor has insidiously become a pathological obsession with eliminating physical activity, robbing us of the birthright of human vigor and inflicting an endless variety of pains, debilities, and diseases upon us. In six generations, our homes have octupled in size. We spend half of our incomes overeating and reducing our movement, a quarter of it treating ourselves for the problems this causes, and much of the remainder entertaining and comforting ourselves because this lifestyle sucks. And still, we worry endlessly about the economy, hypochondriacs in dread of recession, as if that is our problem. Growth economics is the religion of our era, the dogma we dare not question, the atmosphere from which our thoughts are inhaled. But it is obsolete and becoming deadly. The age of scarcity is over. We are now governed by the economics of surplus. The inertia of our thoughts has kept us from reckoning what this means, but the time for that reckoning is forcefully here. Our over-success has put us in the midst of an unprecedented ecological upheaval that threatens all the earthly things that we hold sacred, imperils the future of our descendants, and is killing us from the inside. Ecoculture is the answer to the crisis of the civilized economy, the personal one we experience, and the global one we dread. It is the homecoming we long for, but ecoculture is based on principles that challenge some of the most fundamental ideas we have about the world and our place in it. The greatest barriers to a new culture are not economic, practical, or physical. They are philosophical. We have been indoctrinated with the mythos of civilization since birth. Ecoculture will make no sense until this is discarded. Nature contains good food crops, an almost unimaginable variety of them. It is easy to be ignorant of a food we have never tasted nor even heard of. It is easier still when we are told by authoritative figures that humans long ago domesticated all of the crops worthy of our attention as food. This is perhaps the only frontier of science that has been declared closed. However, this assessment is a reflection of our instinctive culinary xenophobia, a circular logic that ignores everything we actually know about the process of crop domestication. While cultivation is, by definition, an intentional act, domestication is not. Domestication is the genetic change caused by selective pressure under human cultivation, resulting in a plant that is physically distinct from its wild ancestor. This genetic change requires two things, continuous and systematic selective pressure by humans and genetic isolation from the populations that are not subjected to the same selective pressure. However, many systems of managing perennial crops do not involve systematic selection, and any system that involves the cultivation of a plant within a natural community where it is already abundant cannot produce genetic isolation. 
It follows logically that most plants that have been managed for food production were never domesticated. We know that hunter-gatherers cultivated plants because they are the people who initially domesticated our crop plants. But we do not know of a single case where a group of hunter-gatherers domesticated its staple food source, which makes perfect sense. They relied on plants that were abundant in their landscapes and thus could not be genetically isolated. There are profound conclusions to be made from this, which civilized thinkers have been loath to acknowledge. In reality, the suite of domesticated plants upon which the world depends is a narrow assortment of species that just happen to have been simultaneously useful and uncommon. They have no special claim to utility or quality. Being uncommon and thus unreliable promotes certain types of management, such as clearing and planting, that are more likely to produce systematic selection while also allowing genetic isolation. The disproportionate representation of annuals and early successional species among domestic crops confirms this interpretation of their origin. The abundant, ecologically dominant plants that were appropriate for subsistence were the vast majority of calories once eaten by humans, and they constitute the vast majority of species that have been used for food, but they were never domesticated. Civilization says that these plants are not real, but those who taste them know better. Ecoculture is about using this great majority of food plants that agriculture ignores. Interestingly, there are a few important crops that are not domesticated, such as cranberry, pecan, and many varieties of coconut. These fruits, as designed by nature, fit seamlessly into our food production systems. A less well-known example is the apple. There are no morphological features separating the original wild apples of Kazakhstan from those grown in orchards around the world today. Just as most people who eat blackberries and blueberries do not see them as wild food because they are, quote, normal, agronomists rarely acknowledge that these major crops are genetically wild and for the same reason. Once we expand our philosophy of food production beyond destroy and replace and embrace ecoculture, we will find that these four marvelous fruits are only the tip of the iceberg in terms of useful non-domesticated crops. Nature is productive. Natural plant communities can provide for basic human needs. This principle opposes one of civilization's most deeply held beliefs, that nature is deficient and mostly worthless and needs to be replaced with something human-made and productive to be economically useful. This belief is how we rationalize our destruction of nature. In his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, Jared Diamond made the claim that only 0.1% of the plants in a natural community are edible. He provides nothing to back up this utter nonsense, but was never taken to task for it because his readers almost universally share the delusion. The claim is a religious one, insidiously disguised in a work that pretends to honor science. It is true that native communities do not produce everything we want, everywhere we want it. It is also true that natural landscapes and communities are extremely variable in their yield of human food. The same things are also true of agriculture. The most productive natural communities often grow upon the soils that made the best farmland and were removed long ago. Our perception of nature's productivity is skewed by this and also by our ignorance of wild foods. But mostly, it's an indoctrinated philosophy. The potential of ecoculture cannot be reasonably evaluated until it is practiced. I have no delusion that farms will disappear, but I have faith that ecoculture's productivity will impress even the most optimistic among us. Ecoculture is economically viable. 
Many of our wood products are still, thankfully, produced sustainably on the ecoculture model. We have fewer examples of ecoculture functioning successfully in today's food economy. Wild rice beds, blueberry barrens, Brazil nut groves, and the sugar bush. Yet consider this. A maple sugar bush can sustainably produce as many calories and more value of wild leeks per year than of maple syrup. And only a few sugar bushes in the country harvest both crops. A family can make a living producing food without a tractor from 40 acres of woods. This is an inkling of the possibility that ecoculture offers. Many claim that we left the hunting and gathering way of life long ago because it did not produce enough food per acre and because farming required less work. These beliefs are figments of our agrocentric creation myth that are completely unsupported by evidence. The outcome of a thing does not explain the thoughts that put it in motion. The mastery of Hemingway's novels does not explain why the first Mesopotamian official scrawled debt records onto flattened papyrus. Likewise, the efficiencies created through thousands of years of experience, technological advancement, and crop improvement have no bearing on the original decision to cultivate wild plants thousands of years ago. However, these same technological advancements can now be applied to wild crops without compromising ecoculture's fundamentally sustainable nature. You can see this with maple syrup. Despite new sap collection methods, different storage vessels, and different evaporating technology, the sugar bush is still a maple forest, building and holding soil, growing a diverse suite of fungi and wildflowers, home to warblers, flying squirrels, wood frogs. It takes far less fuel and labor to produce a gallon of syrup today than it did a hundred years ago, and the price has plummeted accordingly. Mechanized hauling of wild rice has also greatly decreased the labor required to prepare it for consumption. There are dozens of equally promising native crops whose potential has not been tapped. Let's see what we can do with acorns, hickory nuts, and hazelnuts with modern tools and old ideas. Unlike maple syrup, many of these native crops will not require a huge investment in equipment to be sold at a reasonable price. There are real economic advantages to well-adapted perennial plants that grow themselves and do not have to be sprayed, fertilized, or incessantly weeded. Because native communities are adapted to our climate, soil, terrain, and animals, they require less effort to maintain than agricultural systems. This is what allows them to be feasible without the heavy machinery and chemical warfare that characterize agriculture. This is exactly why the maple industry is built upon natural stands of trees, not planted orchards. It is also why pecans from natural stands are often cheaper than those that are orchard-grown outside their native range, and hand-harvested black walnuts are often cheaper than pecans. Many wild vegetables take no more labor to harvest than similar cultivated produce, and much less labor to grow. But because ecoculture is small in scale and the plant communities it comprises are complex, it remains labor and knowledge intensive in a way that is difficult to outsource to disinterested humans or machinery. It can be pursued on the hobby scale of the home garden, but there is also the opportunity for hardworking people to make a living this way. Production is only half of the equation in economic viability. Ecoculture also requires consumers. Here is the upside to the fact that food today costs only a fifth of what it did a few generations ago. For the first time in human history, most of us do not have to choose the cheapest food. We can choose the best food for ourselves and our world. This trend has been simmering for decades. Organic food, slow food, local food, but these are just slightly different categories of the same old stuff. We annihilated the vast wilderness of the American heartland to produce local, organic, and slow food. 
The shift toward ecoculture will require us to overcome our stubbornly conservative food instincts. This, not economic viability, is the greatest obstacle to a sustainable food economy. Nature is resilient, not fragile. Plant communities are adaptable. In response to disturbance or abuse, they heal, produce, balance, replace, compensate, and grow perpetually. We stop this growth only through extraordinary measures, the ceaseless application of hard labor, heavy machinery, or chemical warfare. The fetish with virgin wilderness does not serve us in our quest for sustainability. It is selfish and denies the humanity of the people who long inhabited this land before Europeans arrived. In the practice of ecoculture, every plant harvested is quickly replaced by neighboring plants, which were already competing for the resources that the removed plant was using. The community will always respond and compensate for the loss. A forager's impact is akin to that of a deer, not a plow. Nature does not disappear because porcupines eat hemlocks or because rabbits girdle sumacs, and it won't disappear because I eat nettles. We cannot destroy nature by harvesting. We can only modulate the composition of plant communities. Nature is flexible. It can take many forms. There is not one correct or perfect state of being that defines health in an ecosystem. Some ecologists point to the particular condition of a locality when Europeans first encountered it and claim that this snapshot represents the ideal state of nature, the only appropriate goal of ecological land management. But nature doesn't work this way. Plant communities change. Pine barrens grow up into pine forests, shade out their bear berries, and then succumb to fires, which returns them to pine barrens, and the bear berries slowly creep back in from the one rocky slope where they had survived. Pine and oak forests become oak forests, which become maple oak forests, which become maple hemlock forests, which burn to a crisp and become thickets of pine and birch again. Who is to say which point in this cycle is the best or the healthiest one? They're all good, wholesome, vibrant, and beautiful. Each location has an enormous range of potential natural communities. Ecoculture is about choosing from among this potential communities that also provide lots of human food and guiding the process of succession and competition to get there. These managed communities provide equal or better habitat and ecosystem services than currently undeveloped lands, most of which have been degraded and compromised. Nature includes humans. This is the most important paradigm shift at the foundation of ecoculture. We belong in nature. We belong to nature. She gave birth to us, shaped us, and nourishes us. Our alienation from nature allows us to destroy her, and perhaps we contrive this attitude to rationalize our destruction. It seems like we got mixed up in a downward spiral of pride and selfishness, like a pointless argument that pushes to the brink of divorce, and it left us here, living under the insane proposition that we don't belong in the only home we have ever known, rejecting the greatest gift we have ever received. Our alienation is not a conclusion that we reason our way to. It is a belief system that we choose. As such, it can be reversed at will. But our separation from wildness is also a physical reality. Our minds are shaped by the world we live in, and our hearts by our minds. Until we know again the smell of hickory husks, the cool of pond water on bare feet, the soft caress of ferns on our shins, the shine of moonlight through naked trees, and the taste of sacred herbs, we will not know our place. We can't just realize or believe that we belong on earth. We must viscerally understand what it means to belong here. To do that, we need to be in nature, 
to partake of it in communion, to participate in it. When we feel that we belong, we will no longer be able to turn a blind eye to the death of our community. Native peoples all over the world have long seen themselves as belonging this way. It is not coincidence that this understanding comes with entirely different and healthier ways of interacting with nature. Ecoculture is the end we seek and also the means to get there. When a deer eats a fern frond, we deem that act a natural part of the food chain in an ecosystem. It is good. When a man eats a fern frond, we call that impact. It is unnatural, bad. Ecoculture rejects this dichotomy. In ecoculture, plant communities are managed primarily by controlling competition. The fundamental act of plant cultivation is not propagation, as is often supposed. It is the removal of competition. In agriculture, this removal is wholesale before any propagation takes place and is renewed annually by mechanical means and now herbicides. In ecoculture, propagation is minimal. Often when a forager acquires a piece of property that she wishes to turn into a wild food paradise, her first question is, what should I plant here? This is an agricultural question. It's a good question if you have empty space from which the natural community has been removed. But the first question of ecoculture is, what good things are already growing here, and how can I help them thrive and spread? The way that you help them is through removing competition. Planting or transplanting should only be employed to establish or propagate native species that belong in the community. Make an educated decision based on thoughtful and careful observation of your land and the plant you hope to establish. Being steeped in the philosophy of agriculture, destroy and replace, we are strongly tempted to waste our efforts by pushing the limits of desired species and putting them in marginal habitats where they cannot succeed. Beware of this trap. It derails resources to failing endeavors and negates every advantage of ecoculture. Managing competition among the plants already present will get you better results than planting, much faster, and with far less effort. This point is hard to overemphasize. Tending the wild landscapes from which we harvest is the natural inclination of the gatherer, an outgrowth of the appreciation that we feel for the gifts that bless us. Don't worry whether or not you are doing enough to justify your harvest, or whether or not you are doing the right thing or the best thing. Sometimes the only job to be done is gathering. You belong there doing that. Gratitude will keep you straight, for it is the opposite of selfishness. Gratitude will keep your heart awake to the next and best opportunity to tend the land you belong to, to return the favors that it has bestowed upon you. When my children and I collected 12 gallons of acorns last October under the big red oak downhill from the chicken coop, there was nothing to repay at that moment but thanks. But the gratitude that I carry every moment for a lifetime of nourishment from nut trees, this is real and powerful. It is the force that planted a grove of nut trees over three acres of hayfield and pasture and thinned out hundreds of aspen poles to release butternut, hickory, and oak to create a more diverse woodland better for wildlife. Some of us believe we are exiled from nature. It is self-exile. Some of us believe that nature will not feed us. She will. Turn homeward and pray. Then do your work as a holiday. Thank you so much, Sam. That is such a powerful essay. I hope people are able to receive it all. If not, you can play it over and over again via northernspiritradio.org. There's just one or two questions I'm going to ask you about it, and we're going to have another session where we'll talk more about the book, Incredible Wild Edibles, for which that is the final chapter. 
So the book talks about 36 plants that can change your life, and Samuel Thayer is the person who wrote the book, and his two previous books are The Forager's Harvest and Nature's Garden. These three books will enrich you if you read them and and put into practice what Sam is teaching you about. There's so much more I could go into, Sam, in the book, Incredible Wild Edibles. We'll do that in a separate session. Foragersharvest.com is Sam and Melissa's website. You'll find also their shop where they produce and distribute various wild food options and processing methods. You can take a workshop from Sam. You'll be just so fortunate. All of those things are stuff you should check out. Thanks again, Sam, for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you very much, Mark. It was my pleasure. So, Sam Thayer, website foragersharvest.com, was my first guest today for Spirit in Action. And there are some bonus excerpts from my visit with Sam on northernspiritradio.org, particularly about the differences between ecoculture and permaculture. Check those excerpts out, as well as further info, links, and a place for your comments. And how will I know that you're listening if you don't post a comment? And there's a donate button, which is how this work is supported. It's full-time to produce these programs syndicated to 33 stations nationwide, and it's you, not corporations or government, making it possible. So make it possible by clicking donate, but only after you support your local community radio station with your heart, hands, and wallet. I love community radio, and I hope you do too. So make real, local, relevant news and music possible by your support. And we're on to our second guest for Spirit in Action. I've had Crispin Pierce here before, but it's been years. So I'm excited to share with you some of the work he's been doing in the meantime. A paper just released on the health effects of frac sand mining. Crispin is Professor of Environmental Public Health at the University of Wisconsin, Eau Claire, and serves on Eau Claire's Sustainability Advisory Committee. Crispin Pierce and I sat down together. Crispin, it's great to have you back after so many years for Spirit in Action. Mark, it's great to be back. I really appreciate and respect the work that you do, um, bringing so much information and insight into our way of life. So thank you again for having me. And you, Crispin, have the education about that, the enriching of the knowledge base as your actual profession, your job. So it's been very impressive what you've brought to Eau Claire. Now, again, you started from Berkeley, California. You went up in Seattle area, and then you migrated to where it wasn't so hot anymore. And you've been biking around. One of the things people really should know that Crispin does is year-round here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, when the temperatures can get down toward minus 20, still almost all the time you'll find Crispin on his bike. Could you say a little bit about what powers you to live that kind of environmental witness? I like to live my life as an example for the themes, the ideas, the concepts that, that I believe are really important. So I do ride my bike 24-7, 365. We have taken out of lawn. We have all natural native plants in our, in our yard. We use a minimum of water, just 60 gallons a day. We recycle. We compost. I really care about not only uh, my own life, but the life of, of my daughter and the life of other people on the planet, also the biodiversity. So I do try to walk the talk. Your work as a professor of environmental public health does not necessarily involve environmental advocacy, let's say. You're a scientist. How comfortable is that walk for you? Because you clearly see issues in the world that need addressing, and you try and raise education about them. 
that's not the same as advocacy, but it, for some people, it's persuasive. You've raised a really important distinction in the work I have here. So I serve the citizens of Wisconsin. I'm a professor here at a public university, and we are scientists. So whether we're looking at issues of air quality around frac sand mines or air quality around CAFOs or around nutritional supplements or radon and nitrates in groundwater, my position as a scientist, I'll present the data as we know it and other people have discovered and allow that, pass it on to the public, to decision makers, to industry, to the DNR in ways that they can make the appropriate decision to protect the health and welfare of people in Wisconsin. And we're going to be talking today, Crispin, about two different ways in which you've been serving the community. One is as a member of the Sustainability Advisory Committee of Eau Claire, and the other one is in a paper that you just released that you did research with your students. It's about the frac sand mines that have been in Wisconsin ever since fracking became more popular. One of the things industry needs in order to run a fracking mine is to shoot down water and sand, I understand. There's kind of a slurry and other chemicals that go in there as well. And so that sand has to come from somewhere. And it happens to be that the Sandman was generous with Wisconsin, and so we have a number of hills and such that can be mined relatively inexpensively. That has been a big industry for quite a while here, uh, more than a decade here in Wisconsin. What got you into this aspect of testing frac sands for the particulates that they produce? I was initially approached by a citizens group out of Chippewa Falls that were concerned about a mine that was proposed at the EOG facility, one of the largest facilities of its kind in the world. And I found that the DNR was not doing this kind of monitoring. Industry wasn't doing monitoring. I saw no other educational groups or research groups doing this. So I felt like it was a great opportunity for an emerging industry in Wisconsin to get a better understanding of the risks about 100 million tons of frac sand are removed from Wisconsin every year. Some of that gets into the air, and there's very little monitoring of that particulate matter. It includes a component called crystalline silica, which is a particular concern because it's associated with lung cancer and other diseases. So we felt that we had the background and some of the equipment to actually do this monitoring to be in compliance with EPA and national standards. One of the the joys of working in this field for the last eight years is that citizens in Wisconsin pooled together and people around the state whom I didn't even know pitched in to crowdsource $65,000 for us, allowing us to purchase two EPA-certified instruments. And they have been invaluable in the work that we did and the work that you cited early that we just published. Let's talk about that paper in particular. And there's previous work and investigation you've done there publications, interviews that you've done related to frac sand particulates and their effects. But this paper, which is due to be published in the Archives of Environmental and Occupational Health sometime over the next year, the title is Monitoring of Airborne Particulates Near Industrial Silica Sand Mining and Processing Facilities. Explain what that is. Break it down for those of us who don't have doctorates. This is a more thorough follow-up to a paper we published in 2015, published in the Journal of Environmental Health, where we sampled at five different locations and found an increase in the level of particulates, or dust, if you will, above the background level. So we looked near particular frac sand mines, processing plants, transport facilities, and we found that the levels were elevated compared to the background. So after the very generous donation that we received from around the state, we purchased the two EPA-certified instruments and followed up for two years near two different facilities. One was in Bloomer, Wisconsin, the other one in New Auburn, Wisconsin, and we used EPA siding characteristics. So where are we going to actually place the monitor away from roads and buildings and trees so we don't contaminate the source? And also on the frequency, it turns out to be every six days for 24 hours. 
So following these EPA protocols, we set up these monitors for two years and measure the levels of, of fine dust and particulates. What we found is that in both cases, both in Bloomer and New Auburn, we found increases in the level of what we call the fine particulates or fine dust, PM2.5, at these two locations over time compared to the simultaneous measurement of background levels. In Bloomer, the level that we found was ultimately lower than the average EPA standard, but it was an increase over the background measured by the DNR. In New Auburn, the level was above the EPA average standard and also above the background level the DNR had recorded. A kind of way to encapsulate this is that we looked at the increases of fine particulates that people living near these facilities would breathe. We compared them with large studies using millions of people in dirty cities, you might call it both young and old people who over time would breathe these fine particulates, whether they came from automobile exhaust or road dust or industrial pollution. And we combined our elevations that we measured these two locations with their estimation of loss of life from living in these dirty environments. We found that for in Bloomer area, for every year that you would live there, you'd lose about one day of life expectancy. The levels in New Auburn were higher, so for every year of exposure, you'd lose about three days of life expectancy. So to understand what those statistics mean, what those probabilities mean, so if you live for 25 years within some certain distance of it, I'm imagining, if you live there 25 years, three days a year, probability you're losing 75 days out of your life because of that. Where do those probabilities come from, the loss of life? You're not measuring loss of life yourself, so how do we extrapolate that from the data that you get? There are pretty large data sets involving millions of people. The Harvard Six Studies data set looked at hundreds of thousands of people. And then a more recent study in the New England Journal of Medicine looked at millions of people, actually Medicare recipients. And they found that over time, people living in dirtier cities lived shorter lives, which makes a lot of sense. The fine particulates get deep into the lung and causes issues like asthma and bronchitis, lung cancer, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease a whole host of ways in which people can die. So we combined, again, our increases in these fine particulates that we measured near the Fraxan operations to the combination of dirty cities, how dirty they were, and how much that shortened people's lives. We use that kind of as a multiplier, if you will. And so, again, we found these one- and three-day-per-year reductions in life expectancies based upon our two monitoring sites. It's something that wasn't intuitively obvious to me originally. These fine particulates and silica specifically we're talking about are of special interest. People who work in coal mines often get exposed to a lot of particulates, but I think a lot of them are larger sized. I could be wrong about that, but, you know, black lung and that kind of thing. Or people who work in the woolen mills, brown lung, they call it. And those all do have effects. How does silica compare to things like woolen fibers or coal? Are they different sizes? Is there a different significance in the kind of illnesses they cause? You're on topic here to talk about these different what are called pneumoconioses, which basically means different kinds of materials, whether it's coal particulates or cotton, other kinds of dust, even wood dust, can cause these same kinds of effects in the lung. And size really does matter. It's the, we call them the PM2.5, the fine particulates that are 2.5 micrometers and smaller in diameter that get into the deep lung. So whether it's coal dust 
or cotton, as you say, or wood dust that can get deep into the lungs. The particular problem with silica, it's a the crystalline silica shape is particularly reactive with lung tissue. So it'll lodge in deep lung tissue and it'll cause reactions. The body's trying to get rid of it. And it has these free radicals on the end, some oxygens that are unpaired electrons. Basically, these fine silica particulates get deposited deep into the lung. They cause a reaction. That reaction turns into inflammation, then scarring and can cause lung cancer. Now, the levels of the silica we have been measuring in just a few samples so far from 8 to about 14%. So we think there is a silica standard promulgated by California and six other states have adopted it, and that's worth looking at. I think based upon our percent measurements of silica, we want to stick with the EPA standard for all fine particulates. It's a better way to understand what might be being contributed from a frac sand mine, road dust, agricultural dust. All those are parts of what people breathe in in these communities. So we believe that the EPA standard is really the best way to protect people. So, Crispin, if this is a sufficient problem, who should be acting on it? You've done research. You continue to do research. Who should be taking action based on the research that you've had? The two organizations are tasked with this kind of evaluation of potential public health risk would be the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources and the Wisconsin Department of Health Services. Both have taken pretty much of a hands-off view of this. They've taken, in many cases, industry-supplied data, which show levels below the EPA standard. I believe these are the two organizations that need to quantify the risk. So I would like to see both the DNR and Department of Health Services say the Pierce data. There are other studies, the six-city studies the New England Journal of Medicine study. These are all pointing to increased risk for people who breathe the particulates, the dust in the air. I'd like to see that be part of the equation that DNR supports when considering whether or not to permit a particular facility. When you refer to the deep lung, I'm not quite sure what that means. I know that there's something called alveoli in the lungs, and they have to do with transferring oxygen from the incoming air into the bloodstream. Is it specific parts of the lungs which are attacked by these PM2.5 particles? The lung is maybe a little bit artificially divided into three areas. So the upper area, the upper airways, and then you get the bronchus, the bronchii, and then they diverge into the alveoli, often called little air sacs. And that's where you have the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide. And those air sacs are particularly vulnerable to fine particulate deposition. We do have what's called a mucociliary escalator. So we're having mucus continuously being pushed up by these little fine cilia hairs, and that cleans the lung. But some substances like asbestos and like crystalline silica of the wrong size get trapped and start to create this inflammation in the lung tissue. And that's what leads to disease. So one level of solution is whether a permit is issued, whether the plant can operate. Is there another solution or other solutions such as filters or, you know, wetting things down? I mean, how does one actually deal with this kind of issue other than simply prohibiting the plant? Is there another solution? I do believe there are, and I was really happy to have a talk with the Wisconsin Industrial Sand Association this week, and they were open to our work. I wanted to share our recent paper with them, and I asked them for the opportunity to actually visit a facility and measure what's happening on site at a processing plant. 
I would love to do this because it would help us to identify the specific processes. Maybe that's going to be a truck driving on a road. Maybe it's going to be the crushing or the conveyor belt, what's coming out of the smokestack for the drying stack. Those are all sources of these particulates. And I would really appreciate the opportunity to work with the industry and do some on-site monitoring so we can better understand and identify those sites where within the production process, particulates are being generated. That having been said, the DNR requires what's called a fugitive dust plan for these facilities. So they will be generally written, as you kind of suggested, using water to wet down roads. If there are any visible emissions to examine the state of that process, whether it's crushing or conveyor belt, and also enclosing the process, the EOG facility to which I referred earlier in our talk in Chippewa Falls put two large concrete domes over their large sand piles. Those are steps that actually can be done to limit the amount of dust that gets into the air. Maybe it's a good moment to transition from the article on Archives of Environmental and Occupational Health that we were just talking about, the paper that you've just gotten a commitment to have printed. As I said, you're a member of the Sustainability Advisory Committee in Eau Claire, about 10 folks on that committee. You've been there since it started in 2014. And very recently, there was a decision that our city would choose the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement, that by 2050, certain goals will be met. So would you talk about, first of all, what the Paris Climate Agreement was? I understand it's completely voluntary, but Eau Claire taking on this as our goals, what does that mean? Well, the Paris Climate Accord is a representation of countries all around the world. Every country that joined that has now pledged to do something about carbon emissions. And it's really about stabilizing the level of carbon in our atmosphere. And we know very clearly that higher levels of carbon pollution cause adverse weather events, higher insurance costs, transmissible disease increase like Lyme disease here in Wisconsin. The causing of flooding, people lose their businesses, their homes, heat waves. It's a very, very serious issue, in my opinion, one of the top three issues that we face as humans. I was very pleased that in the absence of national leadership by the president, that communities now several hundred around the country are choosing to stay in to be consistent with the goals of the Paris Climate Accord. And those goals are to reduce the emissions so that we have an increase of less than two degrees centigrade and ideally less than 1.5 degrees centigrade. That doesn't sound like much, but that's enough. Those kinds of changes, two or three degrees, to melt most of polar ice caps. We have huge, huge losses and changes in our environment when we have those degrees of increased temperature. Coral bleaching, extinction of species, very unusual weather patterns are also part and parcel of climate change. So I guess I'm very proud to be a citizen of Eclair and also to be serving on the Sustainability Committee. Inasmuch as we had recommended, we had asked the City Council to consider a climate action plan that would put Eau Claire in a position of leadership in the state and, frankly, one of the cities in the country to be consistent with the climate accord, to look out for human health and welfare. And the city council in the last several weeks has actually voted unanimously to support the progress in this direction. As you said, Crispin, the goal is to limit the temperature rise for the planet to 1.5 or 2 degrees centigrade, which is about twice that in Fahrenheit. What does it take to reach that goal? I mean, there's a lot of complex steps from our action to the rise in temperature of the planet. What does this mean in terms of reducing the amount of carbon we're putting in the environment, energy use? What kind of things go into an action plan? 
Yeah, you've put your finger on two of the most important aspects as we see them, and that is power consumption. How are we using power? Are we using wind? Are we using solar, which are clean forms of energy, hydroelectric power? We've had a number of industry partners, including the Eau Claire Energy Cooperative and Excel Energy, that have, have input on our deliberations. So it's with energy, it's with transportation. There are also major considerations with refrigeration, that chlorofluorocarbons are part of the problem, so getting better refrigerants and controlling those better. It's educating people on the kinds of diets that we have, that meat-based diet is much more consumptive and generates a lot more carbon dioxide, requires a lot more energy, and requires a lot more water for that kind of diet to proceed. For the city of Eau Claire, we're going to be presenting educational materials. The city's fleet will be modernized to focus more on electric and hybrid vehicles, insulation, proper building construction, and providing a number of different kinds of resources in terms of information to homeowners about, for example, planting trees that soak up each about a ton of carbon dioxide, about alternatives to lawns, about planning and designing new and existing neighborhoods so that people don't have to drive a long way to get the things that they need. So it is about power, it's about transportation, it's about diet, it's about bringing better consciousness to the kinds of choices we make every day, which ultimately affect how we're going to live and the quality of our life. And as it's conceived by the Sustainability Advisory Committee and the City Council here in Eau Claire, is this just a question of education? You, you mentioned replacing the fleet, which is a very concrete action. But when it comes to something like meat, uh, you know, I've been a vegetarian since 1976. My friend Catherine, who works on these programs as well, she became vegan this past year. And I think that has a major effect environmentally on the world if, if we all did that. But since these things are voluntary, education goes so far. I say, well, it may be very healthy, but I like my steak is the kind of thing. Or it, it might be more environmental to drive a Prius, but I like to drive a Hummer. You know, I mean, people have their preferences regardless of facts, I guess I'd say. They don't really want to look at the effects that their behavior is having because they like what they like. So besides the city modernizing the fleet, what are the kind of other concrete steps you can put into a plan beyond education? Yes, you're right, Mark. The city's role, as I see it, and on this advisory committee is to promote healthy options, to give people choices, to let them know there are ways that we don't have to have a manicure yard, to say we're, the city is really going to support the downtown area so people can walk to the Confluence Center. They can walk to get, go to a restaurant. They can walk downtown to see a movie. They can hang out with their friends in bars even at night. They can walk to the beautiful Phoenix Park. And that actually is healthy. That's a way to reduce our carbon emissions. The city can support things like downtown farmers markets and educational tools. We can also work through, for example, the WIC program, the Women, Infants, and Children program to advertise and make available healthy food options. And those are vegetarian-based. They're not all, but food and grain-based is the kind of diet that actually is low in carbon. We can do TIF districts. We can do zoning. I, I shouldn't say we. The city can. We can recommend it. The way that we develop, we have new development, is compact. It's smart growth. It's a way in which people can walk or ride bikes or take a short car trip between the places they need to go. Those are all small but very important steps in reducing our carbon footprint and having a healthier Eau Claire. You said, Crispin, that there are a number of cities that have made this commitment to live up to the Paris Climate Accords. 
I think in some ways, Eau Claire, this little town in the Midwest that most people in the United States don't know, except when they listen to Spirit in Action, that in some ways we're not a blip on anyone's screen. I mean, we're not Boulder, Colorado, and we're not Berkeley, California. We're not even Madison, Wisconsin, which a lot of people will have heard of. How significantly ahead of the wave or properly on the wave is Eau Claire compared to other cities in the United States? We heard when we moved here 14 years ago that Eau Claire was often a test case for new products. It represented people's values, attributes, interests, and I find that continue to be true. My perception of people in Eau Claire that are hardworking and honest, truthful, want the best. And so the work we've done on a sustainability committee is to present the facts, dig out what is our current carbon footprint for the city of Eau Claire. And it's been decreasing the last several years. It's progress. And I believe people in the Midwest understand and know that. When we actually measure the amount of pollution coming out of a car, we measure the cost for heating and refrigeration. And we can sometimes even put a cost on how much more Lyme disease there is, how many more asthma hospitalizations or admissions are. And those are all related to climate change. So Rather than making it a political issue, we can make it a human health issue that we've collected the data, we have a good understanding of how the decisions we make affect our health and the health of our families. And I believe that people in the Midwest and particularly in Eau Claire really appreciate and understand that, want better health for themselves and their families. We are very consistent with what other cities are doing. The the two principal goals will be the increased use of renewable energy and then the net reduction of carbon emissions. Eau Claire, I think, is a leader, as I mentioned, both in, in Wisconsin and the country in many ways. We've set very ambitious and bold goals. But all of us are looking to reduce the amount of carbon pollution that gets in the air, as well as to increase the use of renewable energy. I think the day that the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire decided to hire you as a professor of environmental public health was a good day for Eau Claire and a good day for the state of Wisconsin. I'm so appreciative of your work for the example that you live your life environmentally. People drive past your house and they can see the forest in the city that is such an improvement. Then you worked through with the city how to have that. You're teaching students. You're teaching them in the methods of science so that they can actually make the best decisions possible for our environment and our health. Those many ways, including your help with the Sustainability Advisory Committee, there's so many ways that you've helped the city, and I appreciate that and that you've taken the time here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate your sharing this, what I think to be very, very important information. So I'm honored to be another guest of yours. Thank you. The links to Crispin Pierce and to Eau Claire's Sustainability Advisory Committee are on northernspiritradio.org, along with some excellent bonus excerpts we just couldn't fit into the broadcast, both from my visits with Sam and with Crispin. Listen there, and remember to post a comment when you visit. Make every day Earth Day, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. <music>